You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I know that probably you think, you know, my Monday through Friday is not at all like yours. You know, the pastors, we sit around and just sip coffee all day and uh, bask in commentaries or whatever. And although uh, that's what other pastors do, I don't do that, right? Um, no, I mean, during different seasons, uh, probably like your occupational life, you know, there's um, uh, weans and wanes, there's, there's speed, there's slowness, and uh, there, there can be drama and even trauma sometimes in church uh, vocational ministry. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, so we had gone through a, a very turbulent time in ministry here, here in this church a couple, a couple of years ago, and um, any of you guys have ever had the, uh, the Holy Spirit 3 a.m. wake-up call where they just, uh, boom, wakes you up? I'm not sure if it's the Holy Spirit or just stress. Could be a little bit of both. Uh, but I didn't sign up to wake up. I, my alarm clock says 6 o'clock. I'm not here to wake up at 3.30 in the morning. I wasn't, that's not what I signed up for. That's not part of, of the plan. And uh, it's crazy because, get this, you know, like, y- your body has this memory where, like, if you don't handle some of the problems and the stress that's going on in your body, your body will actually wake itself up and have you have to handle some of the things that you uh, did not deal with from the day before, either in your body or in your spirit. And, uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, our body and our spirit don't have great conversations or even a great relationship uh, within, within themselves. Uh, I was on a, a vacation. I guess I was younger at this time, maybe 26 or 27. I was a teacher at the time, a public school uh, teacher. And, um, and, you know, that, that job is a lot like ministry in the sense that it's a bunch of stuff that you really love, but drinking from a fire hose of that. You know, like you would love to hang out with 20 kids like they do on, you know, Dangerous Minds in the television show or whatever, but really it's 200 kids and they're all saying the same thing and yelling at you and barking at you. And uh, I remember got away for, uh, for a vacation, you know, saved up the money and set apart the week and got down to day three or day four and uh, the RPMs in, in your heart, you know, they go down, usually you're revving at a good 50 miles an hour and maybe on the weekends you get down to 20, but have you ever gotten a zero? It's a crazy feeling when, when the inside humming noise, you know, at the beach on the third day, it's not usually the first day or the second day, but it's finally the third day where you took a nap and you took the nap after the nap and the nap after the, after the nap and you realize that your body catches up with your soul and you realize like, uh, I haven't been at rest for months. Or even worse, I haven't been at rest for years. And you realize that the cost is not only on your body and yourself, but also on your kids. Because you're not the full operating uh, version of, of the way that God created your body and your soul and your spirit to work. You, you haven't been that for months and months and months, and that can't not matter. That's the thing about a cell phone battery is it still operates at 100%, even if it's at 50% or 40%. Until it's at 0%, you're either zero or you're working, right? But the human body doesn't operate that way. Human body, body can't operate at 50 miles an hour the same way as it does at 10 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour or 5 miles an hour. And, uh, and you just ask yourself as a pastor or as just a Christian, if I can't define my cell phone battery life as easy and light, am I carrying the yoke of Jesus or someone else's? And so uh, I got this little red book handed to me a couple of uh, years ago. You probably had it handed to you or put in your face, one or the other, uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of that book before or seen it before, just to get a, okay, just a little, uh, little poll there. Uh, but it was kind of like a required re- reading. It felt like everybody's Instagram and Twitter and everybody's um, uh, Snapchat, you know, had um, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry on it. My friend Graham made fun of me because I listened to The Ruthless. I don't read with my eyes. I listen I'm an auditory person, but I listened to this book on times three, which is a really funny thing when you actually like think about that, right, that I'm burning through this book. And it's a fantastic book, and I'd highly recommend it as we kind of get through uh, this series, this topical series um, 
on the spiritual practice of, of Sabbath. Um, usually, as you're just joining us, we're making our way through whole books of the Bible. Just finished Romans, going to get into Acts in the fall, but for now, we're in rest in Sabbath uh, for this, this month in June. And so Comer's whole, um, uh, his whole claim is that uh, he sees uh, our world inside of the church and outside of the church, but inside the church included, as a, as a restless culture craving for rest. Can you identify with that at all? A restless culture on the brink, but not quite in, being able to wrap our arms around this concept of, of spiritual and physical rest. And he, and he really analyzes it from two different angles. First, from the inside out, that we have infinite desires that are put on uninfinite things. That whenever you have our, our, our heart in Ecclesiastes, which is made to... Um, be known by and to glorify an infinite God, and we place that infinite inheritance on the shoulders of something that's finite, like a vacation or a spouse or a job or whatever, then we're going to find a restlessness inside of ourselves. Not to mention, our outside world continues to evolve, and after World War II, when the economy had been mobilized into you know, uh, one of the greatest military productions we'd ever done in the 40s, after it tried to demilitarize after that, we had all these factories that we had to fill in, and so the boom of the economy and the baby boomers and, um, and consumerism in general in America changed our economy by design, not just by accident, from a needs-based economy to a wants-based economy. In other words, the things that we used to spend our money on, which used to have to filter through, do I need this, is now just, do I want this? And that's what we, you know, that's what we measure our decision or filter our decision of what we were going to purchase. And so it only um, you know, goes to show that uh, within the current reality of us consuming, whether we know it or not, actively or passively, 4,000 ads a day on our smartphones and mobile devices and televisions and, and even our carefully curated Instagrams that our friends kind of get onto our feed, we, we consume 4,000 ads, ads a day, all telling us that uh, not only do we not have rest, but they have it and we can buy it from them. Uh, and, and the result of that is compared to World War II generation that we actually buy anywhere from four in the smallest estimations to 10 times as many consumer goods just in the process of a couple of decades. And out of this, of course, uh, the result would be in our emotional state that 75% of Americans uh, pull themselves as either being uh, anxious or depressed or both, uh, which is way up from, from uh, previous generations. And so in general, I think Comer's argument is basically this, if you don't read it or read it on times three, is that our restlessness is a symptom of searching for and selling Sabbath without Jesus. Every commercial ad, everything that you're liking on Instagram, everything that you're posting on Instagram, everything that you're buying on the mall or buying in, in, in your car or your house, it's this picture of Sabbath, a picture of everything, as the Radiohead song says, everything in its right place. But we can't quite get it, right, without Jesus. And still Jesus stands up in, in the middle of that internal restlessness and external culture of restlessness, and he says these five words, which if there's any altar that would get flooded by atheists or Christians alike, of an altar call that says this, hey, anybody that's tired, these five words, I will give you rest. Is there anybody here that doesn't want rest? Is there anybody here that said I have 100% of my battery life right now? Atheists or Christian alike, we are all screaming on the inside when we hear that verse, that if Jesus has rest, then daggum, I want it. Matthew 11 says it this way, <clears throat> verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And he says, I will give you rest. <clears throat> Jesus says, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. Is there anyone here, when you went back into your inventory and smiled through your answer to your neighbor that feels weary, that feels not in a strong enough place that the next comment, the next eye roll, the next kid screaming at you, the next job thing down the pipe, whatever circumstantial thing, is there, is there anyone in here that does not feel strong and founded but feels weary, that feels yoked? Is there anyone here that uh, feels burdened, that there is a, a heaviness in them, maybe not just of today's burdens but yesterday's burdens and tomorrow's burdens and 10 years ago's burdens, <laughs> that Jesus is calling out for a yoke exchange to experience a non-circumstantial deep physical and spiritual, body and soul and mind, rest. If this is the promise of Jesus, is there anyone in here that doesn't want that? The message says, Eugene Peterson, I like his translation, any of you here tired, worn out, burned out on religion? I will take that one. I will take that one for sure. On my own religion. I'm not speaking about anybody else. Burned out on religion. Come to me, says Jesus. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Anyone feel like they woke up and their life just got stolen from them? Like five years got stolen from them? Ten years got stolen from them because of unforgiveness? Because of, uh, of uh, religion, religiosity? You'll recover it through me, says Jesus. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Like that, Eugene Peterson is known as saying that rest is like walking in the grains of the universe. And when we go backwards against it, we get splinters. Walk with Jesus in the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So we're uh, getting going on this four-week topic, and uh, we'll be here this Sunday, next Sunday's Father's Day, the following two Sundays, and it goes all the way from the person to practice. And uh, it is both a person to practice. As I studied for it this week, you know, there is actually kind of a controversy, a debate, when it comes to the topic of Sabbath, Basically, is Sabbath a person, or is it a practice, or is it both? Uh, uh, there's a reading of Scripture, for sure, and it's a valid reading of Scripture that says that Sabbath, because of what happened on the cross, is no longer a day. It's a person. Sabbath is a person. Sabbath is, like you 2 says, a bloody Sunday, because it costs somebody something. Sabbath is not just a bohemian break from our work to go drink cosmopolitan drinks and hang out and have brunch. It's like, it costs somebody something. Sabbath, right, is the is the separated, exiled world from heaven crashing into earth because of what happened on the cross. Sabbath is a person. And so there's absolutely ways that we can have vacations uh, and Netflix binging sessions and not have real rest, right? Because Sabbath is not a vacation. Sabbath is a person, right? And so, and so in Acts chapter 15, for example, when uh, the Jerusalem Council gets together and discusses what does it means to be a Jew in, you know, um, in the Christian family and, and what is... Uh, what is expected is no longer circumcision, right? And it's no longer uh, the dietary restrictions, and it's no longer the Sabbath, meaning that those three things were ceremonial laws. They were part of the top 10 commandments, but the Sabbath is no longer a command within the Christian community. It's just not commanded. It's, it's a reality. It's not necessarily a ritual. So is Sabbath a person? Yes. Matthew 5, when he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about murder, and he talks about envy, and he talks about lust, he never says, you've heard it said about the Sabbath, but this is what I say about the Sabbath, because he just assumes that everything in the kingdom of heaven is Sabbath. It's not a day. It was part of a ritualistic part of the law that is no longer part uh, of any kind of code or command. So the, the Sabbath is not commanded as a day within the Christian church. Um, however, when you look into, uh, backwards into the Old Testament deeper and deeper, we realize that the Sabbath command, before it was a command, it was just a reality. 
So it is on the Ten Commandments in God's top ten list. But before it was on the Ten Commandments, is in Deuteronomy 16. If you guys remember when manna and quail were offered to the Israelites and there was a six-in-one rhythm where they would collect the, 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 the quail and the manna for six days, but on the seventh day, if they did it, it would spoil. So it's before the law. It predates the law. There is a reality of Sabbath that he wanted to get ingrained into the, his people even before the law of Moses came. And even before that, the creation, Genesis 2, when there were six days of creation, God rested not because he was tired, because he was complete. And he propped his feet up on the earth and said, it is finished, basically. And he rested from his work. And so Sabbath is uh, a person in Jesus, but it's also a rhythm and a reality and therefore a practice. Okay? And so this is what I would kind of, as we, as, we, as we engage into this thing with a Romans 12 kind of a faith, each brother unto himself, each sister unto himself, consider this, is that before Sabbath is a ritual or was a ritual in the law, it was a rhythm. And before it was a rhythm, it was a reality. It was God's kingdom. Sabbath, in the category of the way that heaven would see it, is simply another word for heaven. Sabbath is a synonym for heaven. It's when everything is in its right place. That's why we want it. That's why we want to buy it. That's why we're stressed out when we can't find it, because we're not made for less than heaven. We're made for heaven. So therefore, before it was ever a reality, it is Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is where heaven and earth collide. So here's kind of the discipleship question, the inventory question for you as you think about your cell phone battery this morning is if Sabbath isn't our routine, like we don't have a law and we're not legalistic and you guys basically do everything that you do on the rest of your six days on your seventh day, if, if there's a blending and emerging and there is no partition between the six days and the one day, if that's not your thing, then is it a rhythm? That's the next important question. It does not have to be a ritual, but is it a rhythm? Is there any time in your day or week or month when you stop? That's all that Sabbath means. It means to stop. Do you ever stop? Do you ever stop worrying and stop stressing? Do you ever stop buying? Do you ever stop planning? Do you ever stop thinking? Like, do you ever stop? Because if it's not a ritual, it should be a rhythm. Because if it's not a routine, and if it's not a ritual, and if it's not a rhythm, then the question has to be for us, as we look as disciples in the mirror with the yokes on our back, either we choose or Jesus puts on it, is if it's not a ritual or rhythm, is it really a reality for us? Do we really believe like we live, like God's work is done, or that we have to do it? So the series question overarching for this Sunday and on, you know, the next couple Sundays is this, what is Sabbath rest really? Number one, uh, just looking at uh, Matthew today, seeing Sabbath as a person, that Sunday is bloody. Sunday is not a vacation or um, a chance to escape from our world, but rather to live into it fully, to be fully alive and to be fully human the way that Spirit has created us. Sunday was bloody, and Hebrews tells us to work into that rest because it celebrates the most important thing you can celebrate, that not only creation is done, but the cross has finished uh, its work in us as well. Sabbath as a person number two. Next week, looking at Sabbath as a promise, that uh, Sabbath, in the sense it's a synonym for heaven, is an already not yet reality. It's something that, that it's like a promised land that I experience now, but not in its fullest capacity. So therefore, to enter it, it requires a faith. It requires faith. It's a promise that requires faith and not works. Number three, um, if it is a person and a promise, then what does it look like to practice that? And just going through some of the uh, possible opportunities and invitations, but not commands of what it would look like to stop in a non-stopping world, to Sabbath in an unsabbath world. What does it look like to do that with faith and not by works? And lastly, uh, what does it mean not just to take a day or even take a routine, but live in a Sabbath posture? I think that's the idea. I think that's the idea is you don't take the yoke on and then take it off, but walk in the yoke of Sabbath all the time, even if we only celebrate it in its fullness on one day of the week or uh, one hour of the day or whatever else may be. And so let's get back into this passage uh, that Austin read to us early as we get through, as we've uh, gotten through um, some of that introduction. Oh, let me read just last passage in Romans, and we'll, we'll get into Matthew 12. 
But let me just remind us, in Romans, Paul has set us up for this quite well, as a matter of fact, because if you remember in Romans 14, he just got done talking about Sabbath. But verse 5, Paul says this. One person, he says, considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. This is that section, do you remember, with the weak and the strong, when, when some people can't really separate the difference between their culture and Christ. And so the activity the ritual, the routine, is integrated into who they believe the identity of Christ to be. And so he's just saying, if, if you have a brother or sister that's like that, that is conflating culture and Christ, let them be. Don't destroy their faith. Don't look down on them. Don't judge them because you practice the Sabbath or don't practice the Sabbath or you act like this or you don't act like that, right? So he's saying, faith is colorful, it's not gray. It means you walk out your faith according to what God has given you, right? And if it's good for your brother, it might be good for him and not good for you, but you're, you're acting in faith. And so this is the point. Uh, as we walk into the idea of Sabbath, is that we would access Sabbath the same way as we access the Gospels, through faith. There would be one command, one person in Jesus that represents Sabbath, but many practices, many practices. Some of us will exercise, some of us read books, and some of us, you know, um, are introverted and stay alone. Some of us get together with people and so forth. And so again, faith makes the Sabbath colorful in the church. All right, moving on, chapter 12. So uh, this is what Austin read earlier. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples, they're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Verse 3, he answered, Haven't you read uh, what David did when he and his uh, companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, the showbread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what the words meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on into verse 9. Going on from there, that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. Excuse me. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on a Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, the man, stretch out your hands. So he stretched it out, and he was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted that they might kill Jesus. So there's a lot more going on than just what meets the eye on the surface. The setting, the venue, the seating, the characters, the plot. They're all uh, unfolding this this clash, really, of the view of Sabbath, like what does Sabbath mean and what does it look like on any given Saturday or any given Sunday. And so there's some symbolism there. First of all, the grain fields would have been out of Leviticus uh, in the code. If you had a field, you were supposed to leave the edges for the poor and to let the land rest. And so the harvest represents this fruitfulness that God provides every piece of grain. And so to, to, to plant and sow and reap in Sabbath means that not only number one is that you don't plant on every given day because God provides the Sabbath. And two, you don't eat all the edges of your field because God provides enough for you and what? Your neighbor too. And so Jesus walking around picking up heads of grain is celebrating the best parts of the Sabbath, which again is not just vacation. It's fullness, shalom, and justice for the poor. Secondly, he brings up David and the priests within the Levitical code saying that David, who was actually kind of acting like the high priest when he walked around in his underwear and praised God and all that kind of thing, because the priests had all basically failed in the job because they're all corrupted and broken, that David was actually a first priestly king. He was a, a kind of a priest and a king at the same time. And so by way of the spiritual order, he was doing the right thing by eating the bread on the Sabbath because 
the priests at that given time were supposed to be fed by that bread within the temple because the point of the temple was not about abstaining from things, but the fullness of things, of feasting on God, not just fasting on the world. And so he brings them finally on that little field trip and he has the man stretch out his hand and he heals it. He says, you give you three different sermon illustrations. Do you not get the point? The point of the Sabbath is not for sacrifice, but it's for mercy. It's not for Christians to climb their way up to the hill of the mountain. It's for God to come down it and to meet with them. It's for the people of God to join anyone here that's hungry and tired and empty. That as we gather in the presence of the Spirit of God with the people of God and the Word of God, that we would be filled up out of our emptiness. That any, any crookedness right now, even in this day as we gather here on, on a Sunday morning, any crookedness that is inside of us that it would be corrected and made straight, that's what the Sabbath is about. Any sickness, any sickness that a sick person wouldn't come and just see a show put on, right, for, for the Christians that are live and happen to be gathering in a given room, that the, that, the, that the synagogue is for the sick to become healed and for the sinful to become forgiven. This is what the Sabbath is. It's not abstaining from the world, but it's actually dwelling richly fully in the kingdom of heaven. And so the Sabbath is what Jesus says is about mercy and not sacrifice. It's about feasting, not fasting. It's about healing and not keeping. And it's about mercy, not judgment. Anyone who has ears can hear. And so if you could really think about a Webster definition, like a a more culturally appropriate way to think about Sabbath. Sabbath is about stopping, but it's also about celebrating. It's about fasting from, uh, from, the, from the world uh, to feast, really, in everything that the kingdom of heaven is doing and has already done in Christ Jesus. Uh, my son, Ali, is five years old, and he has a Nintendo Switch, and they're allowed only to play during the mealtimes. That's a little tip for you, a free little Equipping tip for, for parents, I guess, is if you hold off the screens until dinner time, they're real quiet when it's time to cook dinner. It's amazing the way that, that works out. And so uh, little Ollie, uh, he'll get onto the Nintendo Switch until dinner time comes. And so cooking is his favorite time and eating is his least favorite time because he lives to play the Nintendo Switch. And I feel for the guy. Do you guys remember when you were on Boss 99 and you had worked for five hours to get all the way up to Mr. Robotnik in the highest Sonic level? And your parents, you don't understand, like, my play is my work, man. I clocked in. I clocked in, and I want to see this thing done. I, don't want to, I didn't come in here to see my work not done. I will leave when my work is done. And so he screams and panics and runs away in a way that if he could just beat Mr. Rebuckner, he'd feel a lot better about himself, and he'd feel a lot better about me taking the switch away. He's a, normally a very agreeable kid to give the switch away until he's at the boss. And there's something about it, right, to pull the plug when it's not done. That's the hard part on Friday afternoon. It's not done, is it? The report's not done, and the count's not done, and the customer's not called. And even if you were to close up your laptop and wrap up your cords and put it in your bag, you'd still have that project task open in your head, and you'd just think, I'd get a little rest if I could just get it done. But it's never done, is it? And by Friday afternoon and Friday evening, it's not done. And by Saturday, when your phone is in your pocket and it's buzzing, you always want to pick it up because it's not done. And even when you hang up the phone, it still doesn't feel like it's done because we're craving for rest in this culture of restlessness, and there's no rest outside of Jesus. So here's what Sabbath is. That's why Sabbath isn't an action or a practice that we put on paper on our calendar. It's a posture of faith. It's believing that God's work is done even when mine is not. It's a believing that when I put my head down on the pillow at night, even when my work is done, the world keeps revolving around the sun because there is a God and I'm not him. And he's running the world and not me. And so Sabbath is actually not a work of organization of the calendar. It's, a, it's, it's an action of the faith of my heart. Do I believe that the work is done 
in creation and on the cross or not. It's saying to myself on the weekend uh, that getting extra time in front of the laptop is actually not going to get me ahead, right? And ultimately, the one, what I'm saying when I close the laptop at Friday, on Friday afternoon when I, when, I, when I set my week down, is ultimately, I'm not saying that the work is done. He's saying, I don't feed myself, he feeds me. That's what I'm saying. When there's hurting and, and, and problems in my, in my marriage and my family, right, and, and the world's not all set back in its place and everything is not in its right place and I still decide to choose prayer in the morning or choose prayer in the evening and set aside my problems and my yoke in exchange for his, what I'm saying is it's not that everything's healed or everything's better, it's just that I'm saying I believe he's done. I believe he's done, that's what Sabbath is. Lastly, even in ministry, I mean, that's probably one of the hard things, I guess, is that there's, for me at least as a pastor and probably for you as, as a spiritual leader in your home, in your neighborhood, this idea of like, oh my goodness, another call, it means so much to them if they did this and if I could pray for this person and if I could do ministry in this way or I could spend a little extra time, you know, organizing this thing for this dinner or this small group or whatever, then, then we would really see the kingdom of heaven. Isn't the kingdom of heaven about the Sabbath? And then the question comes to us again, is the work of ministry done by me or done by the Lord of the harvest? Is it done by Jesus? And so the Sabbath is really just saying this phrase, it's never done, but he is. It's never done. The work is never done, but he is done, both in creation and on the cross. And so that's my, that's my opening question, right, from earlier, is that if it's not a rhythm and it's not part of your routine, if you can look at the last month, day, and hours of your life, and there's never been any stopping in order to celebrate the kingdom of heaven in your midst, then do we really have faith for the reality of Sabbath? Like if somebody came to you and, uh, and they said, you know, hey, I believe in um, the righteousness of Christ in me, and so therefore I'm sober in Jesus' name, but I'm not taking any limits on where I go or how proximity I have towards alcohol, uh, would we consider that person in a healthy place? If somebody came forward with uh, internet pornography addiction and they believed in the reality of purity and they believed in... Um, the belief of the power of the Spirit to transform them without any of their efforts or without any of their, their help, right? That, those are all true theological statements, but did not make any kind of accountability or ritual or routine, right, boundaries around their, their purity life. Um, are, we, are we really considering that person uh, religious if they did? Is it religious to install routines and rituals and rhythms in your life if something within my heart and my mind doesn't line up with something that God says about me and the kingdom of heaven says about my reality, if it's not a part of my routine, if it's not a part of my rhythm, is it really part of my reality? And how long will we go without the yoke of Jesus thinking it's because I'm avoiding being religious out of that side of the gutter before I, make, I wake up and realize that if it's not a part of my life, then it's not a part of my reality, that I'm not carrying the yoke of Jesus, that if the person continues to ask me year after year, month after month, day after day, hey, do you carry an easy and light, brimming with ease yoke, and your answer is no, year after year, do I really believe that God does the work or do I think I do it? And so it hones down on this one statement. If you caught it, I think it would speak to us. Uh, what does Jesus mean in verse 8? This is his answer, the sermon in a sentence he says to these, these Pharisees and the disciples that are around him. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me read that one more time. This is what Jesus wants you to get about what the Sabbath is, doing things on the, on the day or making a long list of how many sticks you can carry or how far you can walk from the synagogue or whatever, all that means nothing in light of this verse. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what Jesus says. Let's do a little Bible study back in Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had done 
So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work, verse 3, and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, it says he rested from all the work he had been creating. Was God tired on the seventh day? Was God so exhausted and stressed out that he couldn't deal with another person, another client, another colleague? He's decided to go in his room and lock the door, right? That's not the model. The model is, no, he's not resting because he's tired. He's resting because he's finished. So Star Trek fans, right, when Captain Picard solves the last little problem on the planet, and he sits down, and he has one word. He says, engage, and connected to the internet, like Siri says. No, he says, he says, engage. He says, everything is in its right place, and I've propped my foot up on the moon, and my work is done, and so I've declared it holy because it's whole. I've declared it holy because it's done, because it's complete. Fast forward down the line past Deuteronomy 16, the command is actually given to the Israelites to be a treasured possession, a set-apart nation, a different people, a salt and light kind of a community. And uh, Exodus 20 says this, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, says the Lord. Verse 9, six days you shall labor to do all your work, but on the seventh day, there's so much generosity and robustness and fruitfulness out of the six days of work that on the seventh day, Sabbath. Let the land rest, let your kids rest, let your slaves rest, let your animals rest, let your workers rest, right? On that day, you won't do any work because God does in six what everybody else couldn't do in seven. It's basically the point. Neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or your female servant nor your animals nor your foreigners residing in your towns. Eleven, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There it is. So Sabbath is not about calendar. It's about faith. Who does the work down here? Who gets it done? And how long does it take to get things done down here as we trust God or if we don't? And so therefore, rest happens in Genesis 2. God rested because he's done. And then Genesis 20, the invitation is, even though it's not done, rest because God's done. The people of God will rest, not because of what they've done, because of what God has done. And then in Hebrews 4, the hermeneutic interprets the Old Testament through the New Testament through the cross to understand he wasn't just talking about creation. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the gospel. So there it is in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to be having, having fallen short of it. You see, the Old Testament was just a shadow. It pointed to Jesus. It was a big sermon illustration that helped us understand the identity of Jesus. It helps us understand all of the problems that Jesus fulfilled, all of the laws and the promises that Jesus fulfilled. And so the promised land was a metaphor of, of entering into a kind of a heaven, a kind of a rest that Jesus would be able to provide for. Joshua couldn't provide for it. Joshua was a mighty leader, and he was bold and courageous, but Jesus is the leader of leaders. He was the Joshua of Joshua's. He's the one, the sinless one, that laid down his life to offer, offer a true Jordan, a true baptism into the kingdom of heaven. So verse two, for we also have this gospel, this good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith, there it is, not by calendar, but by faith of those who obeyed. We skipped some verses, but verse nine says, there remains then a Sabbath rest. For Old Testament people? Nope. For Christians, a yoke, a different kind of a rhythm and a different kind of a reality. For all those that are in Christ Jesus, the people of God, there's a different kind of a rest for you and me. Verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. You see, there it is. It's not just about taking a break from your occupation. It's taking a break from your religion, from your self-earning. It is living in a world without uh, work and without works. It's a celebration of that, both at the same time, just as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will, be, will perish by following the example of the dis disobedient. And so, um, 
So one of the things that I think is, is uh, and, and Comer talks about it a lot in his book, but one of the things that is important to think about and consider in a very self-care, uh, high boundaries, self-protective, individualistic society is to remember that the Sabbath is not just about worklessness, it's about worship. That the practice of Sabbath, it should not at all lead me inward, but more lead me upward. It is a holy day set apart to the Lord and not for binging Netflix or doing whatever makes me feel good. It's just not hedonism, right? The Sabbath is about worklessness, but it's worklessness for the sake of worship. And if I get to the end of my weekend dreading the week ahead of me, I might not have worked, but I don't know if I worshiped. I don't know if I've been filled. I don't know if I'm clear, if I'm focused, if I have the yoke of Jesus, or if I just have the work of of the flesh, of the yoke of the flesh on my back. And so maybe if you think about it this way, whether you're in your seat and you're thinking about uh, where does rest, what does rest look like for me? Is it a routine? Is it a whole entire day from sunup to sundown? Or is it just an afternoon during certain days of the week? Or if it's just little moments and rhythms and habits that I have as I check the dashboard of my heart to ease myself back into restfulness and worship, those are the two words I think you would measure. What is Sabbath from a practical standpoint? It is time spent in both rest and worship. When in your day, in your week, in your month, in your hours, do you do both rest, not just rest without worship, or just worship without rest, but Sabbath would entail both of those colliding, uh, defining things all together in one space and time. It's rest and worship. It is rest from things like worrying and binging and planning and buying and asking and arguing and sorrow. I know this couple, uh, they just refuse on Sabbath. They take a Sabbath. They're one of these sundown, the sun-up people. They refuse to argue. They will not argue on the Sabbath. No, it's against the rules. We don't argue on the Sabbath. It's a fine topic. It's just not for today. We're not arguing on the Sabbath, right? This is the idea. But even if it's just a moment in time or or a rhythm within your schedule, is there any time when you stop worrying? Is there any time that you stop, that you rest, that you cease? But it's also stopping from uh, drinking, and it's also stopping from holding grudges and scrolling and shopping and comparing and liking and retweeting and subscribing and all these other things, right, that the world would call us rest so that we can worship. Worship plus rest could look like reading or praying or eating or napping, singing, music, gratitude, whatever it is that would bring about worship in your soul while it engages in rest at the same time, we could probably call that a practice of Sabbath. I can't remember the commentary of the book. I'll get it for next week. But sometimes this author was talking about the, st- the, the, the pattern of what Sabbath will do to us, not as a day, but as a way within the routine of our life, that our stopping sometimes actually causes this heavy even sadness and depression and worry just by stopping, right? Because God is showing us in our stopping some of the places that he wants to work. But after a few hours, you maybe you've experienced this before as your, as your barometer goes to 50 miles an hour and 40 and then 30, that stopping does finally lead to a zero miles an hour and a rest. And all of a sudden, have you ever felt your soul catch up back up with your body again? Where you can suddenly delight and pleasure in the things that were numb to you, have come alive, and the colors come back to your heart and your mind, that the stopping leads to rest, the rest leads to delight, and delight leads to an easy worship, a sense of gratitude that God is enough, and he and me is enough, and he has done the work, and I'm not the one that causes this work to happen. Where does this rhythm happen? I'm bringing up some of these words and these uh, concepts as we get more into that in the third week about practices, but where is it that we can put rest and worship in the same space together? That's what we would call Sabbath. All right, the closing remark here in um, Matthew uh, chapter, yeah, we were back in 12 in verse 13. He closes up the story 
in this verse, or, the, or Matthew does, when he recounts the story, he says, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. I love that restored has the word rest in it there. I don't know if the translation meant it that way, but just as sound as the other. And the Pharisees went out, and he plot, they plotted they might kill Jesus. But the world, I mean, one of the things in the book of Exodus, when God commands the people to rest, is not only because God rests, rests but because the world doesn't. That rest is a kind of resistance to the world, and the yeast of the Pharisee and the yeast of Pharaoh that confounds against the church, that there is a resistance that Sabbath does against what the world is doing. But in verse 14, that resistance, it doesn't just come to stifle, but to kill Jesus, that flesh in us that wants to kill uh, the Spirit of God in our midst. And so whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament or just in this gospel right here, we see that there is a clash. There is a clash about the way that the world works and who makes it run in the first place. And so therefore, uh, the New Testament writer in Hebrews, he's not saying that the ritual is the command that leads to life and death. It is the reality that's the command that leads to life and death. There's a word that came up several times in this study that I had this week on the Sabbath called karoti, this Japanese word that basically means working to death. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, or I think it was in the Comer book. But basically, they're finding um, tons of 20- and 30-year-old people that are working uh, 126 or 156-plus extra hours on their work week, and they're dying of heart attacks at ages like 26, 28, 32, that people are literally dying by work. On the other side of that spectrum, even the you know, psychological studies will show you, those that are Seventh-day Adventists or people that uh, know people of that background or faith, uh, for all of the, seven, you know, the Sabbath days, if you look at the average aggregate of the people that are part of the Seventh-day Adventist super ritualistic um, background or tradition, all of the Sabbath days that they took off, they actually added to the end of their life as a st- statistic. So, so what the command is, which is not a day of the week, because I'm sure you could practice a day without the way of the Sabbath, but the reality of the Sabbath is life or death. The kingdom of heaven, repenting and believing that Jesus has done the work and is doing the work, is life or death. And if we were to walk in a spirit of restlessness and our body was never discipled by the Spirit of God and we worked until we died, none of that would change the fact that God's hold on you is done in the spiritual sense of his works are done in you, no matter what your work is. But the invitation of Sabbath as a reality invites us with our soul and with our body to walk in line with the grain of the universe and choose, therefore, either life or death. There was an interesting story uh, I read about in, in this study of... Um, uh, they, they made this um, observation about the difference between the World War II generation and the Vietnam generation, that in World War II, uh, the coming home, right, of the VE Day uh, for those soldiers was about two months. You'd get on your boat, and you'd be able to process and cry and weep and, and remember and celebrate and commemorate all the things that had gone on for what was for sure to change the rest of your life. But how many of you guys would imagine that because of uh, transportation in the uh, 70s, that the people that came home in Vietnam were home in two days. That the process of taking a rest and breaking and stopping, which created all kinds of, of repentance and healing and processing that took place, did not exist for the other side. And I obviously understand that World War II and Vietnam are two different wars with two different generations, but the impact on the soldier's psyche was vastly different. And the ways that those soldiers carried on in the rest of their life beyond the years of um, their fighting uh, were drastically different in, in the months and the years that were, were to follow. And so ultimately, it, it, it leads to a sense of at least a kind of physical death, 
um, in, a, in a kind of restlessness because, in a sense, restlessness and working uh, nonstop and thinking nonstop and, and worrying nonstop is essentially playing God. And in a culture where, uh, where when you ask somebody, hey, how are you doing, and the answer is bu- busy, uh, the Bible would tell us that busyness uh, is not a noble virtue outside of jealousy or cheating or how are you doing, I'm... Um, you know, been lying and uh, running, running over dogs with my car, right? Any of these types of things would be considered sins. Uh, busyness is a sin. Not believing that God runs the universe and has finished salvation in me through Christ Jesus is not a virtue. That is not noble and therefore leads to death. And so the Sabbath command uh, in its reality is a command and practice as an opportunity for all of us in our day-to-day life Uh, is an invitation to view that Jesus' work is enough, both at creation and at the cross. And so for the next couple of of weeks, um, this is uh, an idea, just a homework assignment I would have for you. I know that some of the people in in our church have done this before, based on either reading the book or just walking out in their day-to-day life in their their faith, is if you took a Sabbath day and just saw what happened. I wonder how your body would respond to that. I wonder how your mind would respond to that. I wonder how your parenting would respond to that. If you would, as the writer in Hebrews says, worked to enter God's rest, not only with your soul, but right, with, with the body, is to align your flesh with what the Spirit of God says about work, which is, is it all done? And so what would it look like to cause your body, to disciple your body into the truth and the reality of Sabbath? What's the worst that could happen? You might say, well, maybe become a legalistic, you know, Sabbath-touting Jewish person. It's like, well, maybe you would, but probably not, you know? probably we would find our souls catching back up with our bodies again and we might actually get back in the one day what we would never get back in the eight days. And so there are many practices online. I'd point you to the Bridgetown Church as we talked about. This is a commerce church uh, that has lots of books and practices and questions and things you could do with your small group or your family. But a couple of ideas, one theme for sure is that Sabbath doesn't happen on accident, so therefore it has to be prepared for. It probably means that you're going to have to think about on Saturday, let's say if your Sabbath was Sunday, or think about on Friday if your Sabbath was Saturday, what you're going to eat and where you're going to go and, and kind of get a sense, sense of uh, preparation for it because it doesn't just happen on accident, especially those with kids. Amen? Uh, number two, and this goes out to all the husbands out there, is um, when it is that we're asking our uh, brides, our, our wives, uh, if they do not uh, work or if they are home with kids, to take a Sabbath in the home, you're asking them to rest in their office. And that takes a little bit of consideration, Right? And so there has to be a consideration of both of the partners working to enter into this rest, which is not binging, but it is worship, and setting ourselves up for what's not perfect, but what is faith, which is our kids and our parents and our spouses, hopefully, uh, working in the overflow of what rest would look like in the yoke of Jesus. And lastly, if there's any advice or uh, reminders from the message today, which is just, there's nothing really fancy about it, or... um, or, or super spiritual or guru about it, the word Sabbath is simple, but sometimes hard, and that is just to stop. Re- refuse, tell your body and your heart and your world that the world doesn't revolve around you, and so that God has not only invited you, but commanded you at some points in your life, at some point, to stop. That stopping would produce in you what you can't produce in yourself, which is rest. And that stopping and resting is worth it because what if we were living in the abundance of the generosity of heaven but our souls were so numb that we couldn't delight in it? That the heaven was right in front of us but we lacked the faith to repent and believe in it. 
And then lastly, that out of this would come real spirit and truth worship. Not a straining, struggling, striving, amping my body into something I don't want to do, but an easy, gentle rhythm of rest, the yoke of Jesus. Is there anything not worth that? Is there anything that would come in between you and that altar if it really came down to that promise with that clarity? What would it take for you and your family to actually create a rhythm of rest? And if it's just a homework assignment to do it one time this month, I wonder what you would find. I wonder what you would learn. I wonder what reality you'd be reminded of. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.